You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Uh, Well, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're actually starting a new series today talking about what it means to be uh, a good neighbor uh, and what it means to be the kind of people that are mindful of what's going on in our neighborhood, in our city, uh, and ultimately living the kind of life that Jesus has designed for us to live. Uh, Last summer, my wife Amy and I celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary, and in order, yeah... We know everything about marriage. Uh, I don't think you even start until year 10. That's what I learned. It's like about year 10, you're like, all right, you ready to do this? Yeah, I think, think we've settled in. Yeah, uh, that's what it feels like. And we were going to go all out for year 10. So we got a uh, vacation package to Cancun, Mexico, which is where our honeymoon was. And like we spared no expense. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, we got a hot tub in our hotel room. Like that's, that to me is spared no expense. Like if you can get in a hot tub in your room, you're, you're living the dream. Uh, and so about two months before we go uh, on our trip to Cancun, uh, we find out we are pregnant, uh, which is way better than a trip to Cancun, right? I don't know. Uh, But Amy goes to the doctor, and we're pregnant, and the doctor tells, uh, she's like, anything else? And Amy's like, oh, we're about to go to Mexico. Is there anything I should be mindful of? And the doctor's like, yeah, you can't go to Mexico because of the Zika virus. And so uh, we have to cancel our hot tub hotel room. Um, And I'm panicked because I'm like, hey, we still need to go somewhere for our 10-year anniversary. So I call my grandpa, and I'm like, grandpa, uh, I know you have timeshares, right? Which is a great way to start a conversation. Uh, Are any of those available like next month? And he's like, Josh, I got you, man. Uh, And so he makes some calls. He calls me back. He's like, here's what we got. Four nights stay in the Holiday Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I'm like, we'll take it. Let's go. Scottsdale. Uh, So we fly to California, drop the kids off at the grandparents, rent a car, drive to Scottsdale, Arizona, Uh, the promised land of Scottsdale. So uh, we just do nothing for four days. We sit by the pool and we go eat food. Then we come back and sit by the pool and go eat more food. Uh, Went shopping a couple times. Uh, I had a Fitbit and there was one day where I walked like 712 steps. That was it. (laughs) I'm not proud of that, but it's just what happened. That's just data. Um, It's like I woke up, went to the pool, came back, went to the car, may or may not have driven to a place to get a pedicure, uh, (laughs) then drove to the movie theater. We watched two movies in one day, uh, and it it was really bad weather this one day, Uh, and then drove home and went to sleep, and I was like, that's not even a thousand steps. I think you get a thousand steps like walking to your car. Uh, It was really bad, and I felt terrible. Um, But one of the movies we watched while we were in Scottsdale was the Mr. Rogers uh, documentary. And uh, it, was, it was all the rage at the time. And so we go to watch the Mr. Rogers documentary. And uh, please don't leave our church over this, but like, I didn't like it very much. I thought it was really boring. Uh, it was like really long and it's just a documentary and you pay big money and you're sitting in the chair and you're like, this is good, this is good. Nah, it's okay. This is really, nah, you're mad at me now. I know, I know, I know. Cause I've like offended your childhood. But there were, there was a couple of things that were profound about it. So generally, it's, it's not a movie. I, my expectations were wrong. That's why it didn't work. Uh, but there was a couple of things that were really powerful about the, the documentary. And, and they still, like, are functioning in culture to this day. These principles are still working out, like, 
today in our culture. Uh, and Mr. Rogers, they didn't have like everything all planned out. So they would, they would walk in and they would plan their, their shows like throughout the week, uh, kind of based on what was going on in the world. And there was a couple of times where some stuff was going on in the world that Mr. Rogers would put on a show uh, speaking to that stuff. And so uh, one, of the t- one of the things he really valued was showing love to people with special needs. And he would bring people on the show that had special needs. And that was, that was profound and beautiful and also subversive to our culture. Uh, and then there was another time, and this is probably mo- the most poignant part of the the documentary where there was some racial tension happening uh, in the town that Mr. Rogers was filming in and even nationally. Uh, and, and on his show, uh, his mailman was an African-American guy. And so he came in and uh, Mr. Rogers is sitting down by a, like a kiddie pool and he's talking about how hot it is outside. And he's, he's got his feet uh, in the pool and he invites the mailman to take off his shoes, take off his socks, pull up his pants and like put his feet in the, in the tub. And so they both have their feet in the tub. Uh, and obviously they're different races and there's a lot of racial tension happening in the world. And in this moment, he's saying like, we can, we can put our feet together. Like there's this symbolic picture of like washing each other's feet. And, and again, it's subversive and powerful. And I think something in that hits us uh, in, in, our, in our core, like that's the way it should be. That's, that's right. And so we see that even working out to this day um, in our neighborhood and in coffee shops around our town, there's, there's a sign. I brought a photo uh, of the sign. You've probably seen this all around. Uh, it says, no matter where you are, uh, no matter where you're from, uh, we're glad you're our neighbor. And then there's multiple languages represented there. And so th- this is in my neighborhood. Like if you walk down your neighborhood, you've probably seen this sign. And I, I think, again, that's speaking to the stuff that's happening in our culture, the stuff that's being uh, communicated through the news and social media. There's a lot of tension and people are trying to say, hey, no matter where you're from, like you're safe here, you're welcomed here, uh, I'll, I'll be your neighbor. And, and what's funny about all of that uh, is it's actually from a teaching of Jesus, like this concept of being a good neighbor uh, is built around uh, one of the most misunderstood parables uh, in all of the New Testament. And it's the parable of the good Samaritan. So if you have a Bible, uh, would you grab it and turn to Luke chapter 10? Uh, and we're going to look at the parable of the good Samaritan so that we can see where this stuff comes from. Like where we get this story and why it has so much connection to us uh, today. Because there's no doubt it's, it's still playing out to this day. Is this what Jesus intended? Uh, is, this, is, is this representation in our world coming from Luke chapter 10's teaching? Uh, because the Good Samaritan is being used all over the place. So I, I want to read this to us. And then we're just going to walk through it together and see if we can get at the core of what Jesus was trying to communicate. Uh, so we can obey his teaching on this. So starting in verse 25, it says this. It says, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. There's a crowd, expert of the law, stands up testing Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Jesus turns it back on him. So he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn to take care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for all the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So I want to give us the setting of this story, and then we're going to talk through what the story is actually communicating, and then we're going to try to get at the significance of what's happening here in this teaching. So the setting, stay with me, this is a story, so try to feel this with me a little bit. There's a lawyer, some translations call him a lawyer, some translations call him an Old Testament uh, prophet, or sorry, an Old Testament expert. He stands up to test Jesus. So feel this a little bit. There's this young rabbi named Jesus who's getting a following. And there's an older guy, probably older than 30-something. Jesus was like 30 to 33, 35. He's, in the, he's younger. This older guy stands up and he's like, you're not even tested. You're not really like, you haven't been taught. So I want to put you on blast in front of everyone by asking you the most significant question in the whole world. So he stands up to test Jesus and he says this, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. This is the Jewish mind's greatest question. What must I do? Let's cut right to the chase. I'm not gonna ask you about the the, the Sabbath. I'm not gonna ask you about Levitical laws. I'm not gonna ask you about anything. I'm gonna ask you the meta question of all questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What work? Jesus turns back. What will you tell me, teacher of the law? What does the law say that you must do to inherit eternal life? And this guy gives the best answer possible. This is the perfect Jewish answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he nails this answer. There is no better answer than this. And Jesus goes, yeah, bro, correct, good job. Do that, which by the way is very, very hard. Do that and you will live. And so he's like, Jesus, I don't know if you get this, but I'm already doing that. You can see, and so seeking to justify himself, he asked Jesus, then who is my neighbor? If you're telling me to love God with all my heart, my soul, and strength, I'm killing it at that. Who's my neighbor? I want to make sure I'm getting this right. And then Jesus tells him this story. From Jerusalem to Jericho is about 18 miles. I brought a photo of this uh, this terrain. And so this this is the Jericho Road up here uh, in modern day world. And then I brought another photo of a couple guys hiking. I don't know who those guys are, but I just wanted to show you that people still can travel on the Jericho Road. And so this was about 18 miles of very, very difficult terrain. And this guy's traveling alone. And so this is notoriously known for robbers to be hiding out and for people to get uh, sabotaged on their trips. And so he gets beat up, stripped of his clothes and left half dead. And the the lawyer's probably like, yeah, that could happen on the Jericho Road. Yeah, totally. And then Jesus goes further and he introduces three characters. The first guy is a priest. The priest goes by and a priest's job was to serve in the temple. Very, very highly sought after uh, prestigious religious uh, job. He gave sacrifices to the Lord and he sees this guy on the side of the road. This is a priest. He should move towards him. He should make a move to help this guy, but he sees him and he goes by on the other side. And maybe you could say he didn't want to be seen as ceremonially unclean. Maybe he thought the guy was already dead, whatever. But the priest goes by on the other side. The next guy is a Levite. 
A Levite was a part of the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and their job, they were like church workers. They worked in the temple. So you've got the priest who's inside the temple, the Levites who take care of the temple, and he, he walks by on the other side. Same kind of story. He's like, ah, I probably should, but maybe he's dead. I don't want to be unclean. Walks by on the other side. And then Jesus uses a Samaritan. Now, again, I know many of you know this story, but just to remind you, the Samaritan would be the enemy of the Jewish people. Uh, the, the Samaritans had a different God, that they, they were mixed breed. The Jewish people would wake up in the morning and thank God that they weren't Samaritans. Like these are enemies. These are not people you want to associate with. And that's who Jesus uses. And he says, when, when the Samaritans saw him, he felt compassion. And the Greek word is splagma. Isn't that a fun word? Splagma. That sounds like, like when spaghetti hits the wall, it's splagma. <laughs> It's, that's the word. And, and it, it's translated compassion, but in the Greek, it means pity from the deepest place in your soul. Splagma. He felt it. He felt it in his gut. It's like if you got a letter from the IRS that said, you are being audited, bring everything to us tomorrow, you would feel it in your gut. It would be splagma. Oh no, the IRS hit me up and I felt splagma. It's like that. Or the opposite, you get a letter saying, hey, you have won a, you remember Publishers Clearinghouse? Yeah. Young people were like, what? <laughs> it's a thing. And they, <laughs> no one ever won. It probably wasn't a real thing. But you, you would get that and be like, you're getting $4,000 a week for the remainder of your life. You'd be like, that's great splagma. I feel that. I feel it in my gut. And that's what Jesus says this guy feels. He's moved by him. He's moved by him. And he's moved by him to such a degree, he comes to him. And there's no way the Samaritan has Band-Aids on him. Like, this guy's not on the first aid team of a football. You know, he's not, like, ready to go. Like, he, he probably has to tear his clothes to bandage this guy. He cleans his wounds with oil and, and with wine, which I don't know how that works, but apparently that cleaned wounds back in the day. Just make that happen. But then he puts him on his donkey, takes him to a hotel. And, and some, some commentators say this would be like paying for two months' worth of a stay. Like over the top extravagance. And not only does he pay for the rent, he also pays for the care. And then he tells the guy, hey, if you need to take care of anything to make this work, I'm gonna come back and I'll pay for anything that goes on. Just over the top, over the top story. And then Jesus turns to the lawyer and says this, which one of, the, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So it's not the question of who is my neighbor, it's the question is, who are you? The, the, the lawyer looks at him and says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus looks back to the lawyer and says, well, who are you? And he doesn't like that question because then this, the, the correct answer is the Samaritan. And there's no way this guy's gonna say the Samaritan. So what he says is, uh, the one who showed compassion, Jesus. Yeah, the Samaritan, bro. <laughs> like We all heard the story. I can't say that though. So uh, the one who showed splagma, Jesus, is the one who was the neighbor. And so Jesus turns and says, yeah, go and do likewise. Go and be like that. So what is the meaning of this parable? So, so let me just talk about parables for a second. A parable is intended to do something. It's intended to reveal a truth of God to a disciple and hide a truth of God to a non-disciple. They're fascinating, mysterious stories with multiple meanings lots of times, but they're often saying, hey, I wanna reveal something to my followers and I wanna hide something from those people who aren't listening. Jesus would tell this amazing parable and be like, to those who have ears, let them hear, and he'd walk away. And you're like, I have ears, but I didn't hear nothing. 
don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. If you have eyes to see, you can see, and you're like, I think I missed that. Like, it was intended to reveal to disciples and hide from others who weren't disciples. And this parable has been radically misunderstood. It has been taken and, and boiled down to simply be kind. That is the great meaning of Jesus' parable. Uh, we, have, we have lots of ministries in the world that have taken this story, the Good Samaritan ministry. Uh, there's a ministry called Sojourners. There's lots of people out there that have made this parable about social justice and reallocation of wealth. And they take the story of the Good Samaritan and say, that's how we should act. There's many uh, people who take the story of the Good Samaritan and apply it to suffering, how we should uh, uh, you know, put ourselves in the place of healing, suffering. There's many ministries out there that say, this is a story about someone going out of their way to be generous and virtuous. And that's the story. Uh, I, I used to ride a scooter, you know, like the little scooters, like I had a 150 cc scooter. Uh, I had a 50 cc scooter before, but it was, a not, it was not enough horsepower for me and my desired speed limit. Uh, go, I wanted to go faster. So I got a 150 cc and I tried to ride it down to Hawaii Park. If you live in Poland, Moscow, you know where Hawaii Park is. Uh, the scooter was an absolute piece of junk and it broke down on me on the way to Hawaii Park. There is no cell phone service. Uh, it was terrible, and I didn't tell my wife where I was going. Uh, I was supposed to go to Safeway, and I, I, went, I went to Hawaii Park, uh, and I broke down. It was, it was not a good day. Uh, and I walked, remember the day I walked 700 steps? Well, this day I walked like 100,000 steps, because I had to walk like seriously eight miles. It was like forever. Uh, it, it, was, it was over an hour. I had to walk uphill. Uh, finally got to a stop sign where I could like really see eye contact with people making a turn and they felt bad for me. And so ultimately a couple of fishermen dude picked me up and took me home. And as I'm getting dropped off, he's like, I just wanted to be a good Samaritan. And I was like, interesting. You wanted to be a good Samaritan to me. I didn't know I was beating, uh, bleeding and half dead on the side of the road. But <laughs> if that's how you pictured me, great. It was really bad. Uh, then a couple of days later, the cops called. They're like, hey, your scooter is on the Hawaii park. And I'm like, I know, just like burn it. I don't care. Like, <laughs> It's not a part of the sermon, but uh, that, that really happened. But anytime someone does something kind, they're being the Good Samaritan. That's the story. Wow, look how kind he was. Wow, look how gracious he was. I'm going to put this sign in my yard, letting anybody know that they're welcomed here. I'm a Good Samaritan. That's what people have boiled down the story to. And it misses a critical part of Jesus's meaning when you look at what a parable is for. A parable is to reveal to disciples and hide from non-disciples. But here's one thing that's not debatable. All parables are salvation stories. They are. There's about 40-something parables, and all of them are salvation stories. In one way or another, Jesus is communicating to someone a, a picture of the kingdom and salvation and him being the true king. The parable of the pearl in the field, the, the, the pearl of great price, like that's, that's a picture of salvation. The prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the yeast that makes its way through. These are, these are stories of salvation. And in this connection with the lawyer, you, you have, you may not have seen it. I didn't see it until I really studied it and looked at it. This is actually a story of personal evangelism. 
similar to Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John chapter three, where he tells him, you must be born again, similar to Jesus talking to the rich young ruler, where he addresses the guy's primary concern. Nicodemus didn't understand what it means to be born again. He thought he had to do enough stuff, and Jesus was like, yeah, man, you gotta get this settled. The rich young ruler had too much desire to possess wealth and significance, and Jesus is like, you gotta sell it all and give it, give it to the poor and follow me. He doesn't tell that to everyone, but he tells it to him. Why? Because he's trying to get him to see his need for salvation. And so in this parable, it's the same thing. And he tells this lawyer a lavish story of generosity with a scandalous hero, the Samaritan. Why? Why, why does Jesus use that approach to this lawyer? Uh, well, well, let me loop back to the beginning of the story to, to kind of help us see why he uses this approach. When the guy says, how do I know I can inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks him, what does the law say? And the guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. This is the key. We blow past this part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you blow past that part, you miss the meaning of the parable. Here's why. There is no possible way in it of ourselves that you and I in our current state could ever love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's what the lawyer misunderstands. He misunderstands this. We never, I repeat, never, on our best day, never, on our glorious, most awesome day, never, we never, 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 we never initiate love for God. We only respond to God's love for us. That's subtle, but it's the whole world is in that subtlety. When it comes to God, we only respond. When it comes to God, we only respond. You cannot initiate love for God. He has first loved us. Scripture is clear. We love him because he first loved us. So you can't initiate love for God. So you've got to understand that you're responding to God's love, and then it turns to when it comes to God, we only respond. But when it comes to our neighbor, we take the initiative. When it comes to God, we only respond, but when it comes to our neighbor, we take the initiative. And you respond to the love of God. As you learn to respond to the love of God, you will learn to take initiative towards your neighbor. And this guy missed it. He's like, I already have all this love thing figured out, and I'm just going to go, and uh, I need to know who my neighbor is now so that I can you know, perfect this thing so that I can get eternal life. But this is an interesting part of uh, Christianity where there's, is this a story about morals? Yes and no. Is this a story about salvation? Yes and no. There, there's a couple things that play in the story that, that reveal to us what Jesus is after. Because here's what's interesting about this. Jesus is trying to show him something. Uh, you can tell how much a person loves God by how well they love people. You can tell how much a person actually loves God by how much they love people. The primary way for us to measure the love for God is by measuring your love for people. They're one and the same. Love the Lord your God with everything and that's gonna turn and help you love your neighbor as yourself. That is connected. And so this has a sense of, of, of action and, and initiative we must take, but it's also got a sense of significance that if we don't understand who we are when we take that, we misunderstand the whole thing. So, so let me say it a couple different ways. In this parable, Jesus is saying this. It's not enough to see a need. You have to do something about it. It's not enough just to see a need. You have to do something. 
The priest saw a need and walked by. The Levite saw a need and walked by. The Samaritan saw a need and he, he moved on it. But here's the key. It's not enough to see a need, you have to do something. But what you see is determined by what you are. That, that's, that's the picture. What you see is determined by what you are. Now I could have said who you are or whose you are, but I chose what you are. What you see is determined by what you are. Because what you are gives you eyes to see. And so this guy goes, hey, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes, well, who are you? Because who you are determines what you see. What you are determines what you see. And so who's my neighbor? You've asked the wrong question. Everyone's your neighbor if you are who you're supposed to be. But what you see is determined by what you are. I, I led worship in this church for like eight years. And if you've come to resonate after those eight years, praise God, we have better worship leaders now. But it was me for a long time. And, and it affected me. What I was was a worship leader. So that affects what I see. I want to mess with things in church services. I have opinions about stuff. I can't turn it off. If my wife and I go to another church, I like walk by the soundboard to see what kind of soundboard they have. And like after church, I'll stroll by the stage to see what kind of in-ear monitors they're using. I don't even play music anymore. But I'm like, I wonder what kind of acoustic DI box that guy had. He really had some good low end coming out of that guitar. Wow. And it affects me. And Amy doesn't care at all. She leaves church. She's like, that was great. And I was like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Did you even see anything? Did you see those transitions? That was a joke. <laughs> Josh, you should be able to worship God anyway. I know I should. I'm just telling you it's hard. <laughs> you can judge me all you want. Any of you with the music background, you know what you are determines what you see. Have you, if you have any background in sports, have you ever watched film with a coach? And this coach is like pausing it and you're like, what is even happening? And the coach is like, look at that offensive lineman's foot technique. And you're like, why are you looking at the offensive lineman's feet? That feet technique's amazing. Everybody look at his right foot right now. And you're like, what you see is determined by what you are. If you, my father-in-law is an electrician. He walks into places and just notices the outlets. And you're like, why are you looking at outlets, man? <laughs> Like, he's like, that's a great outlet. You could really run a vacuum cleaner from there. And you're like, what? <laughs> it's just an outlet over there. What you are is determined by what you see. It's, it's how it goes. If, if you are, uh, if you've ever watched like Jason Bourne movies, he, or uh, any of those spy movies, like they walk in, they're like, there will be four exits here. If someone comes in, I'll be leaving that way. You're like, what? It's everywhere. And that's the intent of this parable is to say, who are you? What are you? Because what you are is going to help you see better. Drive through a wheat field with a farmer. They can't stop. That's the intent. What you are determines what you see. And so the significance of the story is Jesus is pushing it back on him to really get at the heart of the matter. And so here's the significance of the story, as best I can say it. This story is not to make people feel guilty about not giving their money to causes. It's not to make people feel guilty about not taking care of those people who are suffering. The story is not designed to make people feel guilty about not loving God perfectly and loving others perfectly. The story is to make you recognize you have to run to the one person alone who can provide that kind of love towards you and that will motivate you to provide that kind of love towards others. So, so let, me, let me say it a different way. 
I know we've said this story a bunch and I know you walked in familiar with the story, but one more time. Lawyer looks at Jesus and says, what do I need to do to get to heaven? Jesus tells him a story where the Samaritan is the hero. Why in the world would the Samaritan be the hero? Like, let's be real. Why not just choose a good Jewish guy? A priest walks by, passes by. Levite passes by. But then like a regular good Jewish dude walks by, steps in, does all the stuff, makes it awesome. Why choose a character that this man has nothing in common with? Here's why. What if the person that we are most supposed to identify with in this story is not the priest, not the Levite, and not the Good Samaritan? What if the person you and I are most supposed to identify with is the guy bleeding on the side of the road left half dead? And what if somebody who had every reason to hate us, every reason to consider himself our enemy, who was nothing like us, chose to walk down that same path we put ourselves on and chose to have compassion for us to take upon himself our pain? What if that's the motivation of the story? That Jesus is trying to get this guy to recognize that he is the one bleeding on the side of the road and outside of an act of absolute grace from someone who owes him nothing, who's honestly his enemy, who has nothing in common with him, then he's going to lay there and bleed to death. That's an aggressive story of personal evangelism. What if Jesus is really saying, you're the one bleeding on the side of the road and I actually am the good Samaritan? What if Jesus is the greater good Samaritan? The one who's not like us. The one who has every reason to be our enemy. The one we have sinned against. The one we have hurt. And what if you and I are bleeding to death on the side of the road and our only hope of survival is an act of free grace from someone who owes us nothing? What if, what if that's the story? Josh, why is that the story? That's the story because after you've been rescued like that, you see the world differently. Maybe that's the story because after someone has given you free grace that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve, and you were desperate for, you're bleeding out on the side of the Jericho road and all the religious people have already walked by. They would have been helpful to you, but the religious people walked by and your enemy shows up. The one you've sinned against, the one you've rebelled against, the one who you have nothing in common with, he walks by and if he doesn't offer you free grace and he doesn't offer you his own significance and his own ride to the hotel and his own provision, then you are left for dead. If he doesn't rescue you, you don't get rescued. The lawyer was looking for a new rule. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus is like, I'm not gonna give you a rule. I'm gonna give you a new reality. You've been rescued. And you've been rescued by someone who should have been your enemy. And when you see that that's happened to you and you've been bandaged and you've been cared for, and even in the story, he's like, hey, if there's anything else, don't worry, I'm gonna come back and get him. Those who have eyes to see, those who have ears to hear, can you, you tracking with this story? I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna pay for it all. I'm gonna make sure it's all good. And so when you see that, and when you understand that Jesus's life was given for us, and that we've been saved by radical grace, then you can no longer walk by people on the path. 
When you realize that you've been rescued, that changes what you are, it changes who you are, and ultimately changes what you see. So the question again is not who is my neighbor, but who has been a great neighbor to me, King Jesus. Now that affects everything about me. And this is called the gospel story. This is why this parable is a salvation story. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, looked upon hopelessly sinful humanity and loved them enough, splagma, felt compassion for them enough to take their hurt, pay their debts, put them in a place and promise to come back for them. And that has affected who we are, has affected what we are, and now what we are has been affected, so now what we see has been affected. So who is our neighbor? Everyone. Why? Because of what we are. We're ones that have been rescued. And so what is, what is the response to this? You respond to the love of God shown to you in Christ Jesus. And you strive, because he first loved us, you strive to love him back. And you go, Josh, I'm not good at loving God back. That's normal. It's striving. You're, you're not earning his grace. You're responding to his grace. There's a great phrase called grace-driven effort. That the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning Did you catch that subtlety? God is not opposed to your effort. He is opposed to you thinking you've earned something. So when you see that he's freely given it to you, then you have effort to love him back with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Are you perfect every day? No way. Are you perfect every hour? No way. But you're on a path and you're trying. And so you respond to his love and then you take initiative towards loving your neighbor. And ultimately, and this is the hard part, this is why it's more than putting a sign in your yard. I think it's great that people have signs in their yard. I think it's great that there's ministries out there trying to leverage the story of the Good Samaritan to help people in need. I think those are good things. But this parable is about salvation. And this parable is about the people of God seeing the salvation that's offered to them and then living that out in the world around them. So it it does not, it does not break my heart that everyone in the Northwest is not a Christian. It does break my heart that a lot of people, probably most people in the Northwest, know a Christian who's not loving them like a neighbor. And so God looks down on the Northwest and he goes, here's my strategy. Here's how I'm gonna reach the world. I'm gonna put my people in these neighborhoods. I'm gonna put my people in these jobs. I'm gonna put my people in this place and my people are gonna respond to my love by taking initiative towards their neighbor. That's God's great strategy. He looks at our neighborhoods and he goes, who do I have in that neighborhood? Oh yeah, I got that guy in the neighborhood. That's gonna be awesome. He's responded to my love. He has seen me as the great king and he's gonna take initiative towards his neighbor because of what he has seen me do to him. And so it's not just enough to put up a sign, though that is fine and that is good. You have to change your schedule to be a good neighbor. This is what the Samaritan does. He's on a trip. He changes his schedule. You have to change your budget to be a good neighbor. The Samaritan pays for him to stay in a hotel. He changes things. He gives of his money to take care of this guy. You have to change your budget. You have to change your schedule. And ultimately, you've got to see that your heart has been changed. So if we want to live out this parable in our life, let me ask you the question, what needs to change in your schedule for you to love your neighbors? What needs to change in your budget? for you to love your neighbors. It could be as simple as like $5 a month to make cookies for some people. It's not crazy. We're gonna budget to have a meal once a month with somebody in the neighborhood. We're gonna budget to throw a party once a season in our neighborhood. 
What needs to change in your schedule? What needs to change in your budget? And then ultimately, what needs to change in your heart for you to be a good neighbor? What's going on in your heart? Are you, are, are you, are you overvaluing family time? Is the idolatry of the nuclear family something that you need to talk to your friends about to go, hey man, I honestly, I have a tough job and a tough life and I just want to get home and shut the door to my fortress and be with my family? Listen, that's not being a good neighbor. That's not what God's designed. So what needs to change in your heart? What needs to change in your budget and what needs to change in your schedule? And the only way any of those things have a chance for long-term change is by perpetually and repeatedly going back to the understanding that when you were left for dead, Jesus came for you. And that motivates us and moves us and challenges us to open up our schedules, open up our, uh, our, our bank accounts and open, open up our hearts to those around us. Because that's God's design to change the world. What's the design to change the world? Christians showing hospitality in their neighborhood. Christians looking at their house as an outpost for the kingdom, as a place of missionary inclusion as a, as a place where ministry happens as a place where carpets get dirty and couches get broken and people just ruin stuff that is a godly home if everything in your house is perfect then good luck being a good neighbor hey everybody welcome to my house don't touch anything or I'll kick all of you out it's like that's not helpful but there's a sense by which we've got to be those kind of people if we're going to live into this and listen, Resonate Church, what would it look like if all of us lived into this? It would look like participating in God's great design for his people, and it would look like moving forward his mission to get his name and his glory to the ends of the earth right in your neighborhood. And there are times where we should get on airplanes and go to the nations to share the gospel, and there's times where we should walk across the street. They're the same, as long as we have a heart that understands what's been done for us. So respond to his love, take initiative to your neighbor. Respond to his love, take initiative towards your neighbor. And we will be the kind of people that God's designed us to be. So I'm gonna pray that we can live into that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you that we know the answer to the question, what, is, what do I have to do to eternal life? And the answer to the question is there is nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. We can believe and trust in what you've done for us. That's why it's good news. If we have to do it, if we have to check off the boxes, if we have to be perfect, if we have to act right, then it's not good news. That's bad news because we are underperformers. We can't. It's good news if someone's done it in our place. And so, Father, we thank you for that love, that you first loved us. So, God, we respond to that love again this morning. We renew our sense of joy in that love this morning. And, God, from that love, we leave this place desiring to take initiative towards our neighbor. Because, Father, you gave your son for them, too. And, God, you've invited us to participate with you by loving those around us. So God, help us make it happen. Help us respond to your love and take initiative. God, help us change our money, help us change our calendar, help us change our hearts so that we can participate in what you're doing. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. 
If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.